All right, gentlemen, we have some important matters to discuss. You've probably heard your wife, girlfriend, sister, and or friends talk about their love of Rothy's women's shoes. Michael, you're in luck because now Rothy's has launched a men's collection that features the sustainable materials, washable design, and premium craftsmanship that have made Rothy's such a phenomenon. Looking good and feeling great just got a lot easier thanks to Rothy's innovative approach to design. They're unbelievably comfortable and supremely easy to care for. Just throw them in the washing machine and they'll look good as new. I know how you hate it when your favorite white sneakers get dirty. Exactly. Next, I'm looking forward to trying Rothy's best-selling driving loafer in navy. It gets a five-star review from nearly every customer. Peruse the entire collection at rothys.com. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com. Happy Saturday. It's August 7th, 2021. And thank goodness you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Michael, where do we find you today? You find me fit as a fiddle and sitting here in New York City. And where do I find you, my dear? Are you going back to Soul Cycle? Listeners need to know. <laughs> I have not gone back. I need to go back because honestly, the other day I took the subway to Midtown. I had to climb up one of those enormous flights of stairs where you come down. It's almost like you're climbing up three flights of stairs. For And I swear to God, I got to the top. I was so winded. I was about to 911 to be medevaced out of there. What about you, darling? Okie dokie. I am reporting to you live from Cardiff by the Sea, California, but I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks to my father-in-law for hosting me. If you hear a gong in the background or some cuckoo clocks or the crashing waves, you know why. But it's great to be here. I always like to be in sunny Southern California, so I'll just be watching surfing documentaries and trying to stay relaxed until further notice. Is this the family version of White Lotus? (laughs) It kind of is, actually. It kind of is. How did you know? I don't know. You know. I'm the disaffected teenager. I'm one of the three disaffected teenagers in the show. I don't know which one. Yes, if you, for those of you who have not watched White Lotus, the new show on HBO Max, check it out and then I think you'll get my reference. I love that show. We have a good piece in the issue. Will Con did a fun little like style profile of some of the characters in it. Anyway, speaking of the issue... Let's talk about the issue, Michael. Wonderful piece in the issue from Rosie Kinchin. You know, we've spent so much time focusing on these believers in QAnon and the anti-vaxxers that we forget that they often have real children who are completely embarrassed by their actions. It's the one thing we all have in common, isn't it? And Rosie interviews the children of these vocal conspiracy theorists to get a sense of how they really feel about what their parents are spewing on the internet. Yeah, and it's not just in the U.S. with QAnon. It's it's over in places like the U.K. And really, what it's, you're seeing this generational divide that happens, and oftentimes Gen Zers are much more savvy about sort of their radar picking up something fishy on social media. But under sort of like hashtag OK Boomer problems, which is their parents not as savvy. So what's happened in the U.K., for instance, is there's a um, woman there named Kate Chimarani. She's a former nurse in her 50s who's been inciting crowds at rallies in Trafalgar Square and other places. She's a virulent anti-vaxxer and anti-masker. So she has a 22-year-old son named Sebastian who gave this heartbreaking interview to the BBC recently where he talked about his gradual alienation from his mother who is now so mired in conspiracy theories that he's basically given up all hope of getting her back again. That's wild. There was another very compelling story about a young man who 
attended Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, of course, where there was a school shooting in 2018 in which 17 people were killed and nine of them were the classmates of this young man. And he posted recently on Reddit that for most of the past three years, his parents had been supportive of him. But at the beginning of lockdown in 2020, his father in particular started to change And the young man wrote, his feelings were so strong, it turned into facts for him. He didn't like having to wear masks. He did not believe in the lockdown. Anything that contradicted his feelings felt wrong to him. And so he turned to the internet in order to find people with similar opinions. And that led him to QAnon. And crazily enough, this young man's father started to believe these conspiracy theories to and for this young man's father. He now believes that the shooting that his son survived was a hoax and that the shooter, his son, and all of his classmates were paid pawns in a conspiracy. So it sounds incredibly far-fetched, but this young man is not alone. In fact, he's shared his story in a group called QAnon Casualties, which has 176,000 members. It's like a support group for those whose family members have been sucked into this world. Yeah, it's a fascinating piece. And as I said, there's research now that shows basically people over their 50s, less media social literate than younger people who've grown up online, and they're less likely to take information they see on online at face value. But their parents, a little bit more likely to be drawn into believing if it's there, it must be true. So terrific piece of reporting and analysis, as you say, by Rosie Kinchin. But it just reminds me, Ashley, like speaking of people who are gullible, George Kalajarakis has an entry in, in the diary this week about another scam that sort of happened on the internet recently, which is if you're an influencer, you may know of a guy named Ramon Hushpuppy Abbas. He's a former Lagos street hawker turned Instagram star turned swindler who has now been convicted of swindling nearly $41 million in cash out of people and luxury cars from people around the world. So the FBI has described him as one of the world's most high-profile money launderers. But for a while, up until he was arrested last year in Dubai, he now is facing up to 20 years in prison. He was just another influencer. And just a reminder to show you that it's everything you see on the web, on the internet, on the social medias is not what it seems to be, right? God, Michael, sometimes I feel like we don't give these Instagram influencers enough credit. They're not only taking pictures of their outfits, they're also hustling money out of all of the rest of us. Talk about having a side hustle, like the main hustle is nothing but sort of side grifts. Ah, this is a beat for us, Michael. I sense the new airmail rubric. Influencers gone wrong. Criminal, the criminal minds. I like it. Dong, dong. Speaking of grifts and speaking of swindling, <laughs> that brings us to the Vatican. It does bring us to the Vatican where it seems like there, as Joseph Beaumont reports this week in a story called Cardinal Sins, we have a Vatican insider who was once Pope Francis's closest ally who is now on trial $412 million fraud case that involves nepotism, prostitutes, and Prada handbags. If this isn't an airmail story, Michael, then I don't know what is. The former high-ranking cardinal and de facto chief of staff to Pope Francis is named Giovanni Angelo Picciu, and he was once considered almost a candidate for the big white hat himself to be the Pope at one time. And he now sits in the hot seat as the first ever Vatican corruption trial to be held out in the open, which is about to begin. This is apparently Pope Francis has just sort of gotten to the end of his rope and trying to get to the bottom of corruption within the Vatican. Ashley, can you walk us through all the details of this? All right. Well, it starts off with a property development deal in central London. So Betu, the former cardinal, 
had parked 200 million pounds into 60 Sloan Avenue, which is a former Harrods car showroom with a very good location on the borders of Chelsea and Kensington. And this building had been converted into luxury apartment buildings. But there was a perfect storm of poor due diligence, Brexit uncertainty, dubious middlemen, and a pumped up price tag, and it created substantial losses for the Vatican. So they lost quite a bit of money, but enriched a bunch of brokers in the process. So in order to get to the bottom of this, the Holy See's in-house police raided the offices of the former cardinal in 2019, seized computers and financial documents, and in doing so, they discovered even more questionable financial dealings. Yeah, there's now a 487-page indictment looking at the sort of cascade of colorful transactions made during his tenure from 2011 to 2018. And it's alleged that he siphoned off millions in euros from global church donations meant to help the poor. But, you know, the spiciest detail of all in all the misdoings here is his relationship with a woman named Cecilia Maragna. And she is a Sardinian femme fatale dubbed Matahari by the Italian tabloids. And she was introduced around the Vatican as the Cardinal's niece. But the prosecution now alleged she embezzled more than a half million euros in church funds allotted for ransom money for nuns held hostage in Northern Africa. And Michael, important fact, half of this money was used to buy designer handbags and shoes. So that's going to get you a lot at Prada. But Michael... In any case, she argued that those things were necessary in order to perform her duties. And ugh, by the way, they all came from Italian brands. So at least we're supporting, right? With all the sordid details here, I think the important thing is why this case is also, as we said, so fascinating is usually these Vatican kind of cleans house well in private behind closed doors. And this is now going to be in public. And the Vatican is also brought in a formidable anti-Cosa Nostra judge, Giuseppe Pignatone, to do the skewering of Betchu here. And he's a guy who's noted for his expertise in unpacking Byzantine financial crimes. I'm glad someone's going to be able to make sense of this. It's one that we're going to be following here. This is going to be a pretty unbelievable story to watch unfold. This is just the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned. Enough about bad behavior. Let's get to a story in which the plot almost seems too good to be true. Uh, we've got Stephen Fry here to talk about an unbelievable story, and it's unbelievable in a good way. Let's take a brief moment to discuss the latest news in shoes. Rothy's recently debuted menswear collection. Michael, I know how you value footwear, so no doubt you're already up to speed. Indeed. Rothy's has become a phenomenon for their supremely comfortable designs, which are entirely made of recycled water bottles. Now, they've introduced an entire collection for men full of classic styles that have been reimagined for right now. There's the RS01, a streamlined sneaker, as well as the more dressed-up driving loafer. I refuse to pick favorites, but by all means, go ahead and see them all for yourself. Another thing I love about Rothy's, you don't even have to wear socks. They feel great just as they are. Check out the new menswear collection from Rothy's at rothys.com. R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com. Well, Michael, we're so fortunate here to have not only a marvelous piece in the issue from the one and only Stephen Fry, but we also have him joining us on Morning Meeting to talk about the discovery that has set the world of books aflutter. Stephen, welcome. 
Very great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for thanks for asking me on. So tell us, what is this library that has recently come up for auction at Sotheby's and why does everyone care about it so deeply? Well, it's called the Honresfield Library, one of those rather tricksy English village names. And it's a story of, I describe it at one point as a Miss Havisham. It's sort of like that. It's a time capsule of a collection. A couple of brothers in Northern England who are mill owners at the height of the Industrial Revolution revolution in the mid-19th century, had a, an extraordinary taste in literature and collected books and, above all, manuscripts, handwritten letters and documents from the great writers of the age and from previous ages. So they built a, a library for themselves, like, and they put together a library of some of the great names of the past, Milton and so on, you know, and... They also collected a great deal of Walter Scott, of his working manuscript of, of Rob Roy, for example, perhaps his best-known novel, as well as first editions of Ivanhoe and all the other great ones. And they collected Robbie Burns, and they lived 20 miles away from a little village in Yorkshire called Haworth. And Haworth Church had a vicar, a parsonage, and in the parsonage lived three girls and a boy called Bronte. And they were amongst the most extraordinary literary families who've ever been, really. I mean, they were extraordinary, these three girls. And they, from the earliest age, had nothing but their own company and a rather gruff, by all accounts, father. And they made their lives matter and come to life by creating literature. And as they were very young, they would just write silly verses and they created an imaginary kingdom as children often will. They called it glass world. And again, as children will, particularly girls, I think I can say without causing a fight, they had crushes on glamorous figures. These days it would be, I don't know, it would be a Justin Bieber or a, some sort of rock star or actor maybe, or an athlete, a sports figure. But in those days it was warriors really. And they wrote these books, Charlotte wrote these fabulous books set in Glass World with the Duke of single hair brushes, writing these extraordinary stories. Charlotte was 12, 13 when she began those. And Emily, who wrote Wuthering Heights, as her best known, and died at a very young age, she wrote poems. And when she died, her sister Charlotte discovered this notebook filled with 31 poems and wrote about how extraordinarily good they were. She knew her sister was talented. She'd written Wuthering Heights, for heaven's sake, but she didn't know she was such a wonderful poetess. And the literary world has has never seen them. It was assumed that notebook about which Charlotte wrote was lost, but it turns out that it was part of the Homersfield collection. And there it is. And it's extraordinary. 31 poems in the hand of Emily Bronte. Incredible find. Really amazing. Oh, and talking of the Bronteana, as it is, I haven't made that up as a word. It is called Bronteana. Anybody who's read and loved Jane Eyre, and I would say anybody who's read it will love it, will remember that in the first chapter, there's a great reference to Thomas Buick's British Book of Birds. And it's used brilliantly. Well, that's a book that they had in Howard Parsonage, belonged to Patrick, their father, and, and that actual book with Charlotte's annotations is, is in the collection as well. Birds are very important in Indian Austin. There's a lot of, even in the later parts, larks and seagulls and things are used as metaphors and so on. It's something obviously very important to her. So to have that, he was the Audubon of British. In fact, Audubon was a great admirer of his and wrote about Buick. So that's a, just a marvellous little extra thing to have as well. So these... These northern mill owners, whom the elite in literature, including Dickens, have tended to characterise as rather
the Philistine, you know, dumb. Hey, now to them books, you want to university, lad? Nay, get down to mill and work hard. All that sort of hard-nosed, money-grabbing Philistine reputation that the industrialists, the ironmasters and the mill owners had. These brothers show that there was something much, much more to them. So it's a heck of a find. Stephen, this is obviously the talk of the literary world and the library world for many reasons. Where would you like to see this collection end up? What are the possible fates here? Well, I'm very much on the side of this consortium, this once in a lifetime, or at least certainly first ever, I think, consortium of libraries that has come together to form a fundraising platform to try and raise the 15 million that is being asked for this collection. And Sotheby's have kindly agreed to stay the the actual auction, the sale, um, and uh, to give a chance for this consortium to work. And their idea is that it should stay as one collection under one name and with one cataloging uh, kind of history and so on, but that it can be physically divided up between the very relevant museums and homes or libraries that exist for the big names, the particularly important holographs and, and documents that the collection has. Well, you capture the romance of this collection so beautifully in your piece, Stephen. And Michael and I read it and we were once again... It reminds us of everything that we love about literature, right? And the ability to transport us to another world in that way, not only through the the page as we read it, whether it's on a Kindle or on a printed page, but also the book itself is a form of art, right? And this these incredible manuscripts that really should be preserved and, and celebrated. What I also love is, I mean, these brothers childless brothers in the north of the UK. I mean, they're characters out of a book, right? They're characters out of a 19th century novel. And what that's one question I do have. I mean, you say in your piece that they, the, the manuscripts were passed down through the years, but they were childless. What was the final stop? Who was the final hand that delivered them to Sotheby's? Good question. Yes, they're the brothers, Alfred and William Law. They had a nephew, also called Alfred, who was later knighted, uh, became Sir Alfred, who was a Conservative Member of Parliament, first for Rochdale and then for High Peaks in Derbyshire, both North Northern English constituencies. He sounded like a more typical Northerner in as much as he lived until 1933, I think, or no, maybe later, 39 might have been. In 1933, he made a sale of some of the Brontiana. He then left it to his children who lived in Buckinghamshire and it stayed there for decades and then moved to the Isle of Jersey where a family now calling themselves Lord Dixon have kept it in their farmhouse, quite a grand farmhouse, and they've kept it in pretty good condition. Not, I think one of the things that that story shows is the power of literature to penetrate a sense and interested mind because, again, without wanting to be patronising about people we can't possibly know, businessmen in the North who made it, you know, uh, whose, whose life was their mill, these were tough times and business was harsh and you were employing lots of people and you had a lot of competition and the cotton was going in the canals were being built and there was a you know a lot to think about and they chose to collect writers like Jane Austen and Emily Bronte in particular and Charlotte you know the, the Bronte sister who was something very new in the world and who lived in a world of imagination and love and freedom of thought and a kind of excitability of emotion compared to their ancestors that was genuinely new in the world and quite shocking. And they valued it clearly very highly. They didn't do it to as investment 
or for the, their personal glory. They didn't make a fuss or boast about having these objects. They, they quietly put them together. And it could only have been a passion that came because they themselves found value in these remarkable artists, these remarkable writers. And I think that's very, very wonderful. I think you're so good at giving the context of that time and, and what these brothers were doing and reminding everyone, this was not people with art advisors or helping them build a library. It was simply the love of story driving them to sort of acquire, which again, remind people like books were still rare to own a book that was an investment and that was an extravagant purchase for many people. And, and to sort of like commit to that it was was also just to take our minds back there when that was something that was held on to. And, but they were pursuing truly the stories and the voices that they loved, right? Absolutely right. All right. So Stephen, I have an important question for you. Money's no object. You can bid on one of these pieces. What's the one that you would want to own? Ooh, there are so many. I mean, I'm an absolutely passionate about Dickens, so the idea of a first edition of David Copperfield is pretty astounding to me. It's you know, not his most literary book in some ways, but it's kind of his most personal. It's very autobiographical, and, and I've always had a particular passion for it. So that would be one. But the Bronte, the, the Bronte material, I'd do anything for any one of those, whether it, even if it was the Buick Book of Birds, that would be such a thing to own, just to turn it and just know that those young, eager, girlish eyes were gazing it, learning it, joking with each other about it, doing drawings from it, writing things in the margin. Saw one of those two days ago when they, you know, there's a cuckoo or whatever it is they're looking at. I mean, that, that brings one so close. It is exciting beyond words to, to be that close. Even to touch on another one of your passions and great talents, am I the only one that thinks that the story of the Law Brothers and the building of this collection would make for an incredible film? Well, it would, wouldn't it? It would be really interesting. And I, I was trying to think of who... I was thinking of probably something like Charles Dance and Ray Fiennes as the brother, as the brothers. Can you imagine those two? I mean, two of my favorite actors in the world. I see Stephen Fry in this role. Ah, oh, you're too kind. I, of course, far too modest to suggest myself. Stephen, you've been so inspiring. And so thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. And thank you for helping us all ventilate and tell about this incredible story. I hope someone listening might just think, yeah, I'll put some pennies in. <laughs> so thanks very much. We'll put you in touch with Stephen to all of our listeners. Stephen, thank you again. We'll see you very soon. Thanks. We've got a fun story this week out of a little north and a little to the east of Italy on the border of Germany and Poland, where all the cool kids are going now, right? Oh, I love this story. It's a new music festival that is promising to blow Burning Man out of the water, and it's in the town of Garbix, Poland. Elena Claverino, our roving woman about town and Europe, has attended this event, and she uh, writes a great reportage from the heart of the scene, especially as we're dealing with this Delta variant, Michael. This is great. This is the kind of journalism I'm living for. A bunch of sweaty bodies pressed up next to one another, listening to great music. What more could you ask for? Ellen is not just our woman about town. She's a kind of our woman around the globe these days. And she's always got her finger on the pulse of where is things are happening next. And like you said, this garbage is a small town that was German territory before the war, about an hour and a half outside of Berlin. But it's become in the last few years, the last decade or so, this sort of home of a, a music 
scene that now incorporates sprawling art installations under century-old trees, everything from disco music to industrial techno. It's sort of become this place to go, right? Yeah, it drew 8,000 people. It's a four-day-long festival. So there are seven stages with different DJs, even yoga and meditation centers, acai bowl stations, and of course, plenty of food opportunities to pick up hummus and oven-fired pizza. The trees are 100 years old, but there are beautiful art installations sitting underneath them, and the sound varies from disco music to industrial techno. So if you're looking for Shostakovich, this is probably not the place to go, but nevertheless, your kids and grandkids will find plenty of ways to entertain themselves. Yes, all is not quiet on the Eastern Front. Uh, Psychedelics are very popular, too. Are there drugs, you're wondering? There are drugs, yes. We are, we are shocked to find there's drugs at a music festival. <laughs> but don't worry, they're going to spray sunbathers with water and magnesium so you don't end up hospitalized. All good. You know who's doing something also really sort of mesmerizing that it does not involve drugs and you can participate in from the privacy of your own living room? Tell me. I'm going to tell you, but you've already told me in this week's issue. So Dan White, New Yorkers know this, but Dan White had a great magic show happening at the Nomad Hotel. It was on Thursday nights. It was like a thing for about five years. And he's a pretty famous magician previously, right? He had worked for David Copperfield and David Blaine, and he had even had some television shows. But it was really with the Nomad where he became this thing, these really incredible shows with incredible tricks. He's just a great personality. During the pandemic, he's had to pivot like so many of us, and he created this Zoom magic show. Michael, I was not a believer. I was thinking like there's just no way the Zoom version can approximate how incredible he is live. Well, it turns out it's pretty spectacular. Like you buy tickets online. It's limited to 150 households. He does two shows on Friday and two shows on Saturday. And you receive a box in the mail a few days before it instructs you not to open it up until just before showtime. And there's also a gentle but firm reminder to dress for a night out because even if you're only staying at home, you are going to be live on Zoom and there is a fair amount of audience participation involved. So anyway, I wrote about this experience and it's just an awful lot of fun. Fun for the whole family, but a really great way to experience a world-class magic show, no matter where you are around the world. Magic. Magic. The art of illusion. All right, Michael, before we leave, please, recommendations. Okay, I have two recommendations. One is, last week I mentioned the great Questlove music documentary called Summer of Soul, which documented the great festival up in Harlem in 1969. This week, we've got a great piece by Evan Eisenberg. If you know about about Burt Stern's classic film, Jazz on a Summer Day, which, if you know it, documented the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival, which featured everyone from Mahalia Jackson to Louis Armstrong to Thelonious Monk, Dinah Washington, Jerry Mulligan, and climaxed with a duck-walking Chuck Berry. But it's being restored, and it's being shown again on the Kino Lorber website beginning August 12th. And I would highly recommend that. I'm looking forward to seeing it in its new version. So I want to recommend that. The other thing I want to recommend, speaking of archival films, it was a great book that came out a few years ago by Mark Harris. And it's on Netflix. It's called Five Came Back, A Story of Hollywood and the Second War. And it looks at five directors, John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens, uh, and the work they did in World War II to capture the story. And what's really great about it is you get each of them is paired with a contemporary director uh, from Steven Spielberg to Francis Ford Coppola explaining their work and really if kind of anything what it also excites you for is to go back and to look into the work of many of these directors like Mrs. Miniver by William Wyler so terrific three-part documentary on Netflix and I recommend that 
And you, my dear? Well, I had an opportunity to get some reading done, Michael, this past week. Oh, good. (laughs) I spent the perfect afternoon in Santa Fe. As I mentioned, I've kind of been traveling around the West. And first and foremost, I'm going to recommend Santa Fe. It's pretty incredible. There's just so much to see here. Anyway, great, big, beautiful country we have here, the United States. Anyway, so I was in Santa Fe. I spent a beautiful afternoon. My husband was on calls, and I was just by myself wandering around town, which very rarely happens. And I went into this bookstore, and I picked up the new novel by Rachel Cusk, Second Place, which came out a few months ago. Have you ever read Rachel Cusk? I have. Did you read the trilogy? No, not all of it. I'm not that smart. (laughs) Okay. All right. I do love Rachel Cusk. She's a British novelist and memoirist. And this is her new novel. And it is weird as can be. And in an act of serendipity, it turns out that she writes in the afterward that she owes a debt to Mabel Dodge Lujan, who was a New Yorker who moved to New Mexico and had kind of a literary salon of sorts in Taos, New Mexico. But Mabel Dodge Lujan was also a writer and she wrote a book called Lorenzo and Taos about the time that D.H. Lawrence came and stayed at her house and what that relationship was like. So second place is Rachel Cusk's take on that phenomenon. And she's writing this totally weird book about a woman who lives in a very remote corner of the world. And she is visited by a famous artist whose work she admired. And she invites him to live in the second place on her property, thinking that if he can make sense of this marsh that she looks out on every single day, then her life will have some form of meaning. So it's anyway, a really wonderful, thoughtful novel, like everything Rachel Cusk does. Again, totally weird book, but I highly recommend it. We would like to thank Rothy's for supporting us this week and supporting us with great shoes as well. Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, please subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.